Amen. If you'll take your Bibles and turn them to Colossians. My last time saying that. Colossians chapter 4, we're looking at also my biggest passage throughout this whole series. Colossians chapter 4, verse 7 through 18. As you're turning there, I want you to think we are talking about friends this morning. If you're a kid, you can be dismissed. It looks like they, they've learned their, their time. They see me walk up and they're ready to get out of here. Uh, that's good. Friends. Not counting relatives, I want you to think about how many close friends you have. Think about it. Close friends. Not counting relatives. In 1990, 1990, 3% of people said they had zero friends. 3%. And 33% of people said they had 10 or more friends, close friends. Okay, so 3% said they had no friends, and 33% said they had 10 or more. In 2021, 12% said they had zero friends. So it jumped from 3% to 12%. And then only 13% said they had 10 or more friends. So... Saying I have no friends at all went from 3% to 12%. And saying I have 10 friends or more went from 33% to 13%. As you can tell, our culture is trending in the wrong direction when it comes to friendships. Obviously, we can see that social media is of no help whatsoever, right? We have thousands of friends on Facebook. But 12% of people in our country right now would say I have zero close friends, not a single one. Now, I know for some of you in here, since, you know, 12% says they have zero friends right now, it, this is a painful thing to think about. But I, I really think that one of the most wonderful things about being in Christ is that you get to be adopted into the family of God. You get the blessing of the church. It's a wonderful thing to be brought into a church where you could find real, meaningful relationships. Uh, I was getting the bus um, to go on a youth trip this past week, and I noticed on one of the buses there's this license plate that says Beach Grove Baptist Church, Friendships for Eternity. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like this cool 90s graphic. Hopefully that wasn't made like last year or something. I think it's in the 90s, <laughs> but, but it, looks, it looks really cool. And I think that's just a beautiful picture of what the church offers is this, these relationships, these friendships. And what I think we see in this text is that Paul had these friendships. Paul had deep, meaningful friends. It's amazing to me as we, as we read this passage how Paul just rattles off all these people, name after name after name. And it's not just superficial stuff because even our close friendships can be superficial sometimes, but not Paul. Paul's not saying, oh, I talk to that person two minutes every Sunday. But he is in the trenches with these people. He's fighting with these people. He's mentoring these people. He's in prison with these people. He shares his heart with these people. What we see here in this passage is a robust band of brothers and sister for Christ. So today's sermon is entitled, Friends in Christ. And I have three points. Paul sends friends, Paul keeps friends, and Paul greets friends. And we see that starting in verse 7 of chapter 4. This is the word of God. Tychius will tell you all about my activities. 
He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For, by, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Herapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. That's God's word this morning for us. Let's go to him and ask for his blessing on it. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray for you to bless this word. God, speak to our hearts. You have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go, God? We are hungry for your word. I pray that you can feed us. I pray that you can nourish us, God. I pray that you can build us up. God, I pray that you can make us mature, that we can be fully assured in the will of God. This morning, I pray that you can take this passage and and shape our worldview, shape the way we view people, shape the way we view you and your word, God. But I pray that you're glorified in this time. Uh, God, we need your help this morning. Guard us from error, guard us from apathy. God, I pray that we can be fully invested in hearing from you through the preached word in this time. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so I know what you're thinking. This passage... In context, Paul is closing the letter, and he's closing the letter in the way he typically does. He's, he's giving farewell greetings to specific people. This is a good reminder to us that God's word here in Colossians is an actual letter that Paul wrote to an actual church with actual people in it. Sometimes when we're reading God's word, we can forget about that, right? That, it's, that this was a letter a, a real man wrote to a real group of people. And that's what we see here. And so Paul begins to close, and he starts giving all these shout-outs. And so we have three points, like I said. The first one is Paul sends friends. And this is verses 7 through 9, where he says, Tychius will tell you about all my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So Paul is sending Tychius and Onesimus to the Colossians. What two fun names to say, right? Tychius and Onesimus. That's pretty good. Tychius is Paul's beloved brother, which means he's in Christ as well. He's a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. So Paul isn't the only minister going around, right? He has Tychius, who is a minister as well. Tychius is right there with Paul, fighting the good fight. He is a faithful minister. 
Interestingly, Paul says here in verse 7, he is a fellow servant in the Lord. So right on the heels of talking about slaves and masters, Paul identifies not only Tychius, but also himself as a slave to Jesus. That's the same word right there that he uses in chapter 3, verse 22, bond servants. He uses the same word here, fellow servant in the Lord. This is radical um, because it shows... Paul and Tychius' radical submission and identity in the Lord, that they would so willingly describe themselves in such a humble way. We are just fellow servants in the Lord. It's an example for us to follow. And then we see Onesimus in verse 9. Onesimus um, is written about in the book of Philemon. So Philemon is basically about um, this brother Onesimus. Onesimus was a runaway slave. So he ran away Um, as he was a slave, gets saved, and then the book of Philemon is about Paul sending him back to his master. So that's what that's about. But what we want to take away here is that Paul refers to him not as a slave, but look at verse 9, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. This is also radical because it shows us that the slave is Paul's brother. It it is an application of chapter 3, verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Since that verse is true, Paul can say, Onesimus, this runaway slave, this fugitive, is my brother. That's radical. He doesn't even mention that he's a slave. Now he does say, who is one of you, which means that we see that Paul, I mean that Onesimus is from Colossae. So what's going on in these two verses Um, three verses, sorry, is that Paul is sending these two men, Tychius being the official minister, to bring the Colossians this letter. So Tychius is serving as this official courier. Paul writes the letter, gives it to Tychius, Onesimus is his homeboy going with him, and they are going to travel to Colossae, go to the church, Tychius will roll out the letter, read it out to the Colossians, explain any confusing things. So there are some confusing things in Colossians, right? Tychius would kind of fill it in. And then he would, um, he would fill the Colossians in on what was going on with Paul. That's what we see here. Tychius has a twofold purpose. We see it in verse 8. Um, I have sent him to you for this very purpose. See, Paul's just telling him, telling him what it's for. That you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So number one, Tychius is being sent so that the Colossians can know how Paul is. Think about Paul's focus in the letter of Colossians. We've said it a lot, but Colossians is about Jesus being an overabundant, all-sufficient, all-satisfying, all-saving Savior. Like He is everything that we could possibly need. And the Colossians are being tempted by a false teaching that says they are actually in a spiritual deficit. So Colossians is written to say, hey, Jesus is enough. Jesus is better than anything you could ever find, so stick with Jesus. That's really part one of Colossians. And then part two is this idea that the overabundant and all-sufficient and all-satisfying and all-saving Jesus Christ demands and deserves radical obedience. That's what we've seen this last half. That, and so basically Colossians could be summed up by saying Jesus is everything and has everything to do with everything. Okay, that's how you could sum up this whole book. Jesus is everything and has everything to do with everything. But what we see here is that Paul's focus in Colossians is not what he was going through. He leaves that part to Tychius. 
Isn't that so opposite of how we would be? Think about, if I said this last week, but if you were in prison and you were writing a letter, what that letter would be filled with, probably, oh, it's so dark in here and cold and musty and these chains are uncomfortable. That's how I would be at least. But Paul here is so focused on Christ, which shows us his priorities, that the mission makes prison an afterthought. Paul was so consumed with Christ he didn't really care about his personal crisis. That's why he says in, at the end of verse 9, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So he kind of has like, I'm going to focus on Jesus, and Tychius and Onesimus will fill you in on what's going on. Um, the second thing that the purpose of Tychius is, is that he may encourage your hearts. Do you see that in verse 8? That is what Paul wants. Paul wants the Colossians to be encouraged. Um, that's what the book of the, the letter to the Colossians is about. He cares about them. He wants them to know the true Christ and not to be tempted by false teaching. He wants the Colossians to be consumed with the glory of Jesus. He wants them to understand um, that everything they need is found in Jesus. That God has a sovereign plan even when he's in prison. That the gospel is spreading and bearing fruit. And I pray that, you know, so Paul wrote this letter to encourage the Colossians. And I pray that this letter has been an encouragement to you to realize that Jesus is everything and to, and to rest in that and to know, and then to be challenged by the fact that and he has everything to do with everything, that he has a, a sovereign um, claim on every single part of our lives. That's what Colossians is about. And that's why he is sending these two men to read this letter to the church. Which leads us to point number two. Paul keeps friends. This is in verses 10 through 12. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For him, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. So he starts in verse 10 and 11 with three Jewish co-workers. He mentions Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. Three men who were Jewish Christians. That's what he means when he calls them men of the circumcision. And Paul does say here that these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers. Do you see that? So Paul is, is lamenting here that out of all my fellow workers, I just have these three men of the circumcision. I just have these three Jewish men who are partnering with me in ministry right now. First one is Aristarchus. All it says here is that he is a fellow prisoner. The word here could be translated like prisoner of war, which kind of shows us that Aristarchus was in prison because of being a fellow Soldier of Jesus Christ. He's a prisoner of war. The second one is interesting because it's Mark. Who's referred to as the cousin of Barnabas. If you'll take your Bibles and keep your finger in Colossians obviously. But if you turn to Acts 15. should be on the screen starting in verse 36. We see the background of Mark and Paul. And it starts in verse 36 and it says. And after some days Paul said to Barnabas. Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Paul and Barnabas were, were partners in ministry. They did everything together. They're were, they were going on mission trips together. And then we see in verse 37, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. 
But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So Paul's saying, hey, we're not bringing that guy. He's not trustworthy. Verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So what we see here is that Barnabas wanted to take Mark with him on this mission trip, and Paul said, hey, that guy is not trustworthy. We're not taking him. And because of that, Barnabas and Paul split up. But ultimately, here in Colossians, this is later on, he says to greet Mark. And what we see, it's brought up again in 2 Timothy 4.11, where Paul says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So what we see in these little letters is Paul had some doubts about Mark, but Mark grows up. Mark proves himself. Mark um, gets forgiven by Paul, and there's this reconciliation. And eventually, I mean, Mark's here in this letter of Colossians. Eventually, Mark has a ministry in Rome and writes the gospel of Mark. And I think this shows us that growth in Christ can be messy. And it's not always a straight line up. Mark blew it, but was restored and redeemed and has this amazing... I mean, he wrote a book of Scripture. You see what I'm saying? And so we we see this kind of storyline of Mark. And then finally, there's Justice. Originally, his name was Jesus. And they changed his name for obvious reasons, okay? So it, that's really all we know about him. Okay, there's not much about justice in there. But his name was Jesus, and now his name's Justice, and he was a Jewish man. Okay, but he notes two things about these people. Number one, they were fellow workers for the kingdom of God. You see that in verse 11. They were fellow workers. Um, the kingdom of God is the reign and rule of God. And these Jewish men are side by side, fighting for the gospel, working for the kingdom of God. These were the kind of companions Paul had. They didn't just like the same chariot games or something like that. They weren't in a fantasy chariot league. I don't know. But no, they were fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And not only that, but they were a comfort to Paul. You see that at the end of verse 11? And they have been a comfort to me. This shows us that Paul was not just a giver. But he was a receiver as well. He received comfort. Paul needed comfort. Paul needed encouragement. Paul didn't just do this ministry work alone, but he had fellow workers and fellow ministers and fellow prisoners of war, fellow counselors. I think about the the fellowship and, and the deep friendship that occurs when you're on a mission trip. Have you ever been on a mission trip? Um, I, I remember talking um, to the Builders on Mission men, and they were just talking about how wonderful the fellowship is on trips like that. Um, that's one thing that Randy has pointed out to me, is just the fellowship is just so wonderful and so sweet. And I think that's kind of what we see here, and I think we get a picture, because when you're, you're on the mission field, when you're, when you're working hard, and you're, you're tired and sweaty, and you're, you're not sleeping in your own bed, and you might not be eating as well as you, you used to, but you're filled with such joy because you're doing something that matters. You're on mission for the kingdom of God. And I think this shows us that when you are living for things that matter, when you are working for the kingdom of God, those that are in the trenches with you get closer than you could ever expect. Like when, you, when you're living on mission together. Um, it kind of reminds me of 2 Timothy um, chapter 2, which says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. You know, so often when we're not living on mission, when we're not thinking about 
you know, praying for open doors and walking through open doors, we get distracted by petty things, don't we? We get mad about like little things. But if we're on a mission together, it's almost like we can forget about the stupid stuff. Like, let's focus on sharing the gospel. Let's focus on making disciples. Let's focus on reaching this community. And once you get in the trenches together, it, it forms this camaraderie. But if you're just living on vacation, you get a little picky about how things are going. That's what I've found, at least. Then he goes on to three Gentiles, starting in verse 12. The first one is Epaphras. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Uh, we talked about Epaphras in our very first sermon in Colossians chapter 1. Epaphras was a man who probably heard the gospel from Paul, was probably discipled by Paul, and then came back to Colossae and brought the gospel to them. Epaphras seems to be the man who planted the church in Colossae. He is the one through whom the gospel came to the Colossians. And he is a great example of a minister. Why? Because he prays. Look at verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling. The CSB says wrestling. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Paul, I mean, Epaphras here is a praying minister. He works hard. Paul, in verse 13, bears witness that he has worked hard for the Colossians. This specifically comes out through prayer. And it shows us that prayer isn't an easy thing, but it's hard work. It's something that Epaphras wrestled with. He struggled for. He worked hard to pray for the Colossians. Just like anything else meaningful in your life, you have to work at it. And Paul, as a pastor, as a minister, sorry, Epaphras, I'm so used to talking about Paul. Epaphras, as someone who really cared about the Colossians, did the hard work of praying for his people. He, he is proof of the, of the principle of chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Epaphras did that. Epaphras prayed for his people. What did he pray for? Look at the text. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that, here it is, you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. He wants the Colossians to be mature Christians. Think about Paul's goal of ministry in chapter 1, verse 28, which says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. What's the purpose of that? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul teaches so that people will become mature in Christ. And here we see Epaphras praying so that people will become mature in Christ. He wants mature, grown Christians in Colossae, who know that Jesus is everything and has everything to do with everything. He's praying for mature Christians that will be, as the text says, fully assured in all the will of God. He wants Christians who know the word of Christ, who are sure of it, who stand on it, who are not tempted by false teaching and plausible arguments. So what does Epaphras do? He prays. He prays because prayer is work. Prayer does something. Epaphras knows if he brings these prayers to God, God will produce maturity in these Colossian believers. Essentially, Epaphras is praying for the Colossians to have a biblical worldview that changes the way they view absolutely everything. Then finally, in verse 14, we see two more Gentiles. So it goes three Jews, three Gentiles. Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. Luke is a big deal. He is the author of one-fourth of the New Testament. That's a pretty big deal, right? If you think about Luke, pretty big book, and then Acts, the sequel to Luke, 
is another really big book. Luke wrote both of these. And the weird thing is, in, in, the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, there's not much about Luke. We really don't know too much about him. But from this verse, we learn that Luke is a physician, he's a doctor, and we learn from the context that he's also a Gentile. The second person is Demas. Demas is with Paul at the writing of this letter. But later, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul writes, For Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas is with Paul in Colossians, but by the time 2 Timothy is written near the end of Paul's ministry, Demas has deserted Paul. He's left the faith because he was in love with the present world. Um, Demas does not continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard like Paul prays for and asked for in Colossians 1.23. But instead, he was taken captive by empty deceit. He fell in love with the world and leaves Paul. And we all know people this has happened to. You can probably think of people who used to sit here um, in these chairs and are currently no longer in this church. They fell in love with the world. And in this one verse, we see these two paths, Luke and Demas. Um, Luke, who goes on to write this, write two huge books, stays faithful. And then we see Demas who falls in love with the world and drifts away. Um, I think it just serves as a warning to us. Then finally, in this in the last section of Colossians, Paul greets friends in 15 through 18. He says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So, in verse 15, we see Paul tell the Colossians to give Paul's greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. So Paul's not saying hello to the Colossians here, but he's wanting the Colossians to say hello to the Laodiceans. Um, in lieu of Paul. Now, Laodicea and Herapolis are nearby towns um, to Colossae. So they're all kind of near each other. And then there's Nympha, um, who is hosting a church in her home. It seems like she was a wealthy woman who had a big enough house that she could welcome a church in. It could, that church could be in Herapolis. It could be in Laodicea. We really don't know. But what he wants to do here is he wants the Colossians to take their letter to Laodicea and read it to the Laodiceans. And he wants the Laodiceans then to read their letter to the Colossians. You see that? That's what, he, that's what he's wanting. He leaves Herapolis out of it. So there, there's no letter exchange for the Herapolians. I don't know how to say that. Um, but there, there's no letter exchange there, which shows us that both of these towns, both of these churches might be dealing with similar things. But what this really shows us is that the letter to Colossae, since it was supposed to be read in Laodicea as well, that Paul sees this letter as having authority that transcends just the location and church that it was written in. So he's writing the letter to Colossae, but he thinks it has something to say and has authority over the church in Laodicea as well. You see that? And so this is a justification for us to be sitting here in this room right now to be reading this letter. That this is not just, you know, this, this very specific document to Colossae, but instead this is God's word that's supposed to be shared, that's supposed to be studied, that's supposed to be read. 
the letter to Colossians, to the Colossians had something to say to the people of Laodicea, just like it's had something to say to the people here. There's also this little thing here um, and at the end of verse 16. See that you also read the letter from Laodicea. This is a letter that Paul wrote to the Laodiceans that's lost to history. Um, we don't have this letter anymore. I, you know, it's kind of tempting, like, I wonder what he said. I'd love to read it, but God is sovereign over that. He's given us exactly what he needs, what we need in the word. Um, but it is lost history. We don't have it. Then in verse 17, he turns his um, attention to this guy named Archippus. Imagine being this guy. Uh, imagine, because, you know, Tychius would come. He had come to the church of Colossae. He would begin to read the letter of Colossians. It's almost done, and then your name gets called out. I mean, that would be like a... You know, like Archippus, you know, he sits up straight. And what he says is, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Think about how you'd feel hearing that. You would feel honored. You might feel called out, challenged. But this probably shows us that Archippus needed this challenge. Um, We don't know what the ministry is, but Paul names names and tells Archippus to fulfill his ministry. Do the work you've been called to do. Now, when this was written, when Paul was writing the letter, when Paul and Timothy were writing the letters, Paul probably didn't like actually write it out. He didn't write it with his physical hand. He would most likely use a scribe. So he would be talking to someone, and there would be somebody who would actually be sitting there writing it. But here at the very end, this is typical of Paul, he takes the pen into his own hands. That's what happens in verse 18 where he says, I, Paul, Write this greeting with my own hands. It's his own handwriting. Um, And he says two things to say goodbye. Remember my chains and grace be with you. Remember my chains. It's just Paul wanting to be remembered in prayer. He's asking for prayers. Ultimately, these chains should encourage the Colossians because he was suffering for them. He was suffering for the sake of the gospel. But Paul wanted to be remembered in prayer so that he could have the strength to continue to declare the, to declare the gospel with clarity and boldness even in the face of suffering and persecution. And then Paul ends where he begins. Chapter 1, um, verse 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then at the end he says, Grace be with you. Paul ends with the grace of God. Grace is freely given, unearned, undeserved, unasked for love. You're not getting what you deserve, but you're getting love instead. And Paul is just reminding us of the grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ, which is truly what this book has all been about. It's grace that Jesus came to this earth and died for us. It's grace that we were created. It's grace that we could be called saints. It's grace that we could be a part of the family of God. It's grace that Christ has a will for our lives. Do you not see that a command that Jesus gives us, this all-good, all-loving, all-generous creator, if he says put to death sexual immorality, that's grace to us, that he tells us that he's spoken so clearly, that he's given us the way of wisdom to walk in? That is grace. That is God's unearned, undeserved, unasked for love. And that is what this book ultimately is. It is a sign. It is a means of God's grace to us. And I'm thankful for it. Two takeaways from the passage. Number one, I want to point out that Paul gives life with his words. 
You see how he talks about people? He doesn't have to do this. Tychius is a beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant. Onesimus, this slave, is a faithful and beloved brother. Aristarchus is a fellow prisoner. Mark, who he had beef with, right? Who he had these problems with. He says here, he goes, hey, if he comes, you welcome him. You see that? Epaphras is a servant of Christ Jesus, a hard worker. Luke isn't just a doctor, but he's a beloved physician. You see the -the over-the-top language? He calls the Laodiceans brothers. I just want to encourage us to see how Paul talks about people. Like he could have just listed off these names, but you, you, you feel this warmth, this love, this investment. Paul's really, truly friends with these people. These are really brothers in arms. This leads me to my second takeaway, is that we need to follow Paul's example of doing the hard work of having deep, close, Christ-centered friendships. This is something that men need. This is something that women need. We need friends in Christ. We need friends for eternity, as the license plate says. And that happens when we serve together. That's hap- that happens when we invest our lives in the church together. So I want to encourage you that that's what... That's what Christ offers. Is he offers a list like this. Paul lived on mission and that led to all these friends in Christ. So in conclusion of Colossians, I said it before, I'll say it again. Jesus is everything and has everything to do with everything. I want to remind you of that, that Jesus truly is everything. I hope Christ is all to you this morning. I hope you see him as your creator, your sustainer, your redeemer, your savior, your hope, your glory. I hope that this book can encourage us to set our minds on things above and not on things of this earth. And then Jesus is not only everything, but he has everything to do with everything. And I hope one thing this book has done is I hope that it's shattered any compartmentalization you have in your life. Where you might say, well, Jesus is everything, but he doesn't really mean anything to my family. That's not true. Or Jesus is awesome, but he doesn't really have anything to do with my work. That's not true. Or Jesus is awesome, but he really doesn't have anything to do with how I treat my neighbors. That's not true. But Jesus has something to say to every single aspect, every single bit of our lives. So we need to submit to his grace. Because that's what it is. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for the book of Colossians. God, I thank you for... um, Your word, which we truly believe is every single bit of it, God, we believe is inspired. But not only do we think it's inspired, but we think it's profitable. And even a passage like this that might be difficult, might seem distant to it, God, might seem irrelevant at first. God, I pray that it's been profitable to our souls. God, build us up. Um, God, we thank you for your word. We receive it. And I pray that you can lead us into deep, lasting friendships in Christ that happen because we live on mission in Christ. God bless us um, with your power and presence this week. In your name, Jesus. Amen.